Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to another edition of the Warrior U Podcast with your hosts, Bram Conley, Reese Dewar, and Coach Louise Benoit. These podcasts seek to provide you with ongoing motivation towards your goals. We will explore topics around nutrition, physical preparation, and motivation, as well as discussing what to expect from life in the military. For more information on today's podcast, be sure to visit the show notes, and don't forget the Mentors for Military podcast, too. Drop in and have a listen. Well, so I, I was an army brat. I have a brother and sister. My dad was in the military. I just I've been exposed to the military my whole life. Although we grew up predominantly in New York, in New York City, where my parents are from, with my grandparents as my dad tracked around. I played sports my whole life and um, didn't didn't look at initially going straight into the army right out of high school. I went to a regular university to start and then realize that I needed a lot more structure in my, in my school academic life. And then that's what led me as, as well as sports into West Point. And then from there, just the standard West Point career and went aviation branch after and um, into flight school. Yeah. Following flight school, went to my first unit and then deployed immediately after that since uh, I was actually in flight school when 9-11 happened. Uh, met Casey in school, and then we got married after we had we had graduated, and I was in flight school. But pretty pretty normal was at Fort Hood for the first assignment, and then to Fort Bragg. Went to the standard Army courses in between, and then got out uh, just under ten years, mainly for family reasons. Obviously, that's with three kids we had in three years, and decided that was the best option for us to just all stay together since we had spent a lot of time uh, not together with different deployments. So yeah. got out and, and came over to the UAE, been here ever since, been here seven, eight years now. And you were somewhat of an athlete, I would say, at the military academy. So there was lacrosse and swimming. Right. I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say I was uh, the best on either of those teams, but I did, I, I certainly did enjoy and and excelled at, at sports and sports, what it does just with, with all of the participants, it just brings teams together and it bonded certain friendships and relationships, especially at West Point, it bonded us for life. And not just the being you go through with practice, but the competition and, and traveling out to other schools and, and things like that, it pushes you to your limits. It, it definitely gave me an experience both in high school and in college, I would say, gave me experiences that you can't get anywhere else unless you're, you're actually competing at, at certain levels. And as you know, I, I attempted to do some triathlons and, and whatnot after I had had kids and stuff. And I enjoy it, but it's more for, for fun yeah. than anything else. But I still like to get out there. Yeah, we did one together. And I know that you're, I know that you're, um, a half decent swimmer because when I was at the top of my game swimming, you came down to a couple of the master sessions and schooled me, so that was good fun. Well, that was my only strength, though. That's the that's the hard part. I had that bike and run. I needed to get 
get my game up because the triathlon has three different events. And although swimming was great, it didn't really uh, didn't didn't last the full length. And on those bikes, you you were something to be feared as you were on your bike passing me like a motorcycle. So oh, I, I still hard. enjoy it. But. You joined in 1997, commissioned as a second lieutenant in 2001. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've sort of skirted around the issue. You could have done a host of other things, but what made you actually think, I'm going to go and join the Army, I'm going to walk in there and sign up? What was the motivating factor for for that, which then was the catalyst for meeting Casey and then, you know, having your three wonderful <laughs> the rest, kids? The rest of my life? Yeah. Well, to, and truly at, at the time, being recruited and a free education at West Point was really what got me in the door. So it was... It was sports and the discipline around going to a, a really good university, an engineering school, where you didn't really have the choice to, to screw off and to, to get into trouble because every minute of every day was, um, you know, scheduled and set for you. And I, I think I really needed that. And I excelled in that environment. So yeah. it taught me just prioritization. It taught me when you're younger to watch good and bad leadership in, in older classmates and then to get to be an older classmate or an upperclassman and just be a senior and have other kids and younger freshmen looking up to you and setting the example. And really it, it was the best decision I would say in my entire life was going to that school. And it's, it changed the rest of my life because of it. So good and bad. I mean, there's, there's definitely good things and bad things that go on, but um, with every bad thing or every challenge, if you get through it and your lessons learned, it just makes you a better person. So yeah, I'm a big believer. And did you did you have any female mentors before that, Jess, or was there any was there anyone who you could reach out to and ask for advice for for West Point or in general? Um, no, I, I don't I don't really think so. Um, going into into school, but at West Point, there were several, and um, some were seniors when I was a freshman, and then some were coaches, um, especially on my lacrosse team. I would say my coach was a female lacrosse player, and um, she wasn't, didn't seem like she was that old at the time, but she really mentored us, and, and from when we were a freshman, and it's so hard just to get through classes and practice and everything, all the way up to when you're a senior and you're about to go out into the army and all of what that entails. She was a great, um, uh, I would say a great mentor okay. for me. And, and I think there at West Point, I really got to know a lot of, a lot of women that were, were great examples of what I wanted to be. I also had some peers to include my roommates um, that, that were unbelievable and, and still do awesome things today, but without each other, especially in this very small um small population of people. We were less than 10% women in the school. So it's a very close group of group of girls that stick together, um, I would say, through thick and thin because you have to. Yeah, okay. And I think the Royal Military College does it quite similar to West Point in that the class above mentors, the, the class below, or might even be a couple of classes above. And, and that's similar to what happens in West Point, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as you, you know, sophomores have certain roles and then juniors have 
other roles and then seniors are you know the the commanding officers and they have more responsibilities you as you get more experience in the school so just starting out as a freshman you're pretty much just hanging in there yeah. <laughs> you have nothing but day-to-day life and i i mean i know you quite well so I, I know the sort of person you are i would assume that you then would have been mentoring people at the end of your time at west point i would assume oh absolutely like that's that's probably one of the best things about being there is then even as a from a sophomore but as a senior i was i was the captain of my lacrosse team my senior year looking out at you know some of the freshmen that are on the team that you can you have the opportunity to really look at some of these girls in the eye when they're just i can't do it i'm not going to make it another day and you know look at them and and motivate them and just Look at you know have have them look at you and and live through your experiences so they know they can they can do it they can make it whatever the issue is whatever whether it's school whether it's upperclassmen and discipline or drill and all of what we had to go through it's it's great to be that upperclassman and help somebody else. Right, our, our military college is quite similar in some regards as well with with the job selection at the end you apply for certain jobs or you ask to do certain jobs and they tell you if they're available or not. Were you nervous worrying about whether or not you were going to be selected for flight school or, or, and and then, and then what was the alternative if you didn't, if you didn't go to flight school, what was it? You know, I was wondering if you were going to ask me that because (laughs) I I cannot remember (laughs) because I was, if we were playing poker, I was all in. Like I wanted aviation I wanted that branch and I wanted to go to flight school and I nothing else second third fourth choice none of that even mattered I I figured (laughs) I remember talking to my to my mom but like I want this I can't even imagine getting my second choice and and it it wasn't a guarantee everything's based like you had said about what what the availability is and how high you rank in your class based on academics and the full picture um so i was i was quite nervous at the the thought of not getting it but i'm i'm very happy to say that i i did i i think i might have picked engineers second and the reason is i was a i i did enjoy engineering i'm a math and science kind of person so i picked engineer branch as my backup but it just wasn't the same and for for women you know, there weren't the opportunities there are now. So you weren't really going into infantry or anything like that. Not that I would have done it at the time because honestly flight school and flying um, was what I really wanted to do. So I'm glad that that all worked out. And do you remember your first day walking in the door at flight school? What was that like? Well, we, we had, uh, I think the majority of West pointers that graduated that graduated with me, like my senior year, that we're all going to flight school, kind of all went in together. So there were tons of people that I knew. I was, you you also, when you select aviation branch and you're going to flight school, you don't all start at the same time so because the classes are only so big and they also have to incorporate Army second lieutenants coming from regular universities that also went aviation branch. They space you out to so many can start each month or every two weeks. I forget how it was. And I wanted to get started right away, so I didn't really want a big break. Um, Some people graduated in June and were like, I'll start flight school in December. You still had to show up to Fort Rucker, and and they called it Snowbird, where they found other jobs for you as a second lieutenant. But I wanted to get right into it. Mm. 
and, and just not kind of get it over with, but just get, get started. Also, because I, I do, I get nervous and worried about things that I can't, I don't really know about. So I want to just, let's start. And they, they bring in through academics first. So it was all classroom and it wasn't that uh, nerve wracking. It was, I felt pretty good. The, yeah. the scariest parts of flight school really had to be actually flying for the first time. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I'm basically a pilot having read Chicken Hawk. So, you know, <laughs> so what did you find was the most challenging part of flight school or what was the thing that you remember maybe struggling with a bit or being worried about with flight school? Well, I, and I don't know if this is a very regular, a, a standard answer for most people, but I would say for me and my friends that I knew it was actually getting into the helicopter with, you know, your instructor pilot who's some older Vietnam vet that's been <laughs> thousands and thousands of hours and you're still sitting in there like 21 years old, brand new, and you're sitting right next to him and you're actually trying to hover. So getting the helicopter to remain at a three to five foot distance from the ground and be still yeah. as you learn how to operate all of what, it's really a lot of, it's not, I wouldn't say it's um, it's technical. It is technical, but it's hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Jumping on one foot, rubbing your stomach in a circle, blowing a bubble, patting your head. It's just very different things that you have to put together. And I just remember, <laughs> I remember my whole class being in, if you weren't flying, you're kind of in this little um, classroom looking out the window at everybody else getting a, having a go at, at hovering and just watching when the oh, aircraft no. was with the with the instructor pilot, yeah. smooth and still and just perfect, three feet, not not at all moving. And then you would watch as probably the instructor pilot handed the controls over to the student, and the and the aircraft would jump from inches from the ground to twenty five feet in the air to you know just trying to just keep it in the same airport. And and it just it was hilarious. But going looking back now, it's funny. At the time, I remember just the sweat, the white knuckles as you grab the controls and, you know, your heart race, feeling like you're going to kill this poor guy next to you and you're never going to figure it out. But one day it just all does. It clicks and it comes together and you're doing it. You know, you're just you're feeling the winds and you're, you're, you're able to to hover. But that would be my my story is the scariest and the hardest. Yeah, I've heard it's pretty pretty difficult. And do you, do you learn to fly a fixed wing as well as rotary during? No. So school? in in the army's the army uh, aviation branch, we don't. We we go straight rotary wing and into helicopters. You have an option later on to go the fixed wing side if you'd like to, but it's very limited on how many slots there are. So it, it's very unique in the. U.S. Air Force, where they do also have helicopters, they put everyone through a standard fixed wing course first, and then they bring the ones that are selected to go rotary wing. But for us in the Army, since it's all four primary helicopters are, uh, are we, you just go in straight into, we fly TH-67s, which is like a trainer aircraft, and then they teach you from the ground up. So I've never flown a fixed wing aircraft in my entire life. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, but the, a lot of the theory, a lot of the flight theory is quite similar, isn't it? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. aeromed and just everything to do with you know radio calls and things like that. It's the yeah. it's the operating the aircraft that's different. You learn to fly on NVGs at flight school as well. 
Yeah, we do. So it depends. You don't do it right away, but you do probably, I would say, maybe halfway into it, six months in, right. and then you start flying at night, so night you, unaided. So you get the instrument flying and then NBG. Right. Mm. And you learn all about, obviously, NBGs and all of, learn about the actual equipment first and then learn how to, you know, physically how to wear it, use it, because you're looking both outside through your goggles and then inside the aircraft under, you know, not obviously through the tubes. You're looking with your eyeballs at the, at the cockpit directly. So it's, yeah. it's good. It's, it's, it's challenged, but it's obviously what is needed out in the field and in combat flying at night is the, is the key. And was there m- many other women with you, Jess, flying at that point? In my flight school, in my particular class, especially once we went to our particular airframe, I had one of my closest friends, uh, my closest friends and first roommate at West Point. Her name's Jen. And we were both in um, in the Kiowa Warrior advanced aircraft together. So probably about 18, maybe even 16 to 20 in our total class. And we were the two women that were in it. And it was it was good. It wasn't actually wasn't odd it wasn't by the time we got to that point after being at school and stuff it majority of my life I was in the very small minority of women but I wasn't the only one in my class so I was I was glad especially to have a a friendly face like Jen with me they never put us really together they always partnered us with other people but we were both we were both there at the same time let's talk a, a little bit about uh, your deployment so once you finished or once you've joined your unit first of all let's talk about that what was it like once you joined your unit? Does, were they really accepting of you or was it one of those whole hazing things or what was the what was the sort of reception that you had? To be honest, because the timing of when I went to my first unit was right as OIF and, and the war in Iraq was starting, there, there's the normal hazing of new, new pilots, new lieutenants especially that come into a unit, but everyone's focus was 100% going to war. Because 9-11 had just finished, right? Just finished. It it actually, I was in flight school when 9-11 happened, and then it was um, however many months later I got to my unit. When I arrived to my unit, I I didn't even have any aircraft. They were already shipped Mm. and on their way. So, So everyone in my entire unit was full prep as far as bags packed, ready to go. And I knew hitting the ground, it was going to be either I hit the ground and we all deployed together, or if I didn't get there in time and they already left, I was meeting them in combat. So it was yeah. going to be a, and same with, same with Casey, like everybody was completely ready to go at that point. And it, it certainly changed the experience of first getting to, you know, your normal unit where you're not in the fridge with sodas and the normal sweeping, you know, the normal hazing type things that everyone's mind was fully focused on going downrange. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I was, I'd been in the army 10 years when 9-11 happened and that first 10 years had been fairly vanilla. And then the next 10 years, I can barely remember because we were stepping through our asses either on tactical assault group or in Afghanistan. So it's, it was an incredible speed, wasn't it? That decade. You're going to adapt and you're going to do it. Whatever's whatever's asked of you and whatever you had to do because there were people, and, and as, as hard as it is to say it, there were people dying. There were people you know, being killed and 
your our support, especially on the aviation side, it was so necessary. We knew how important it was to support the the ground troops and everybody that was doing what they were doing. It it changed my entire. Uh, I would say that there are people that probably could spend twenty years in the army before nine eleven, and in three years or five years, I I I was. I was able to do fly and and do missions that other people hadn't done in 20 years. Yeah, it's incredible, and, well, isn't it? Because timing. When you think of it like mm-hmm. that, yeah. And how how fast were you deployed after after you got to your unit? How quick? Well, I don't know if you you remember this, but because of the issue with Turkey letting certain the the Fourth Infantry Division come through Turkey, we were supposed to come. Third ID was coming from the south, and four ID was going to come through the north into Iraq. But because there were issues getting our the political reasons being what they were through Turkey, they actually turned our ships around, and we also we followed three ID, yeah. so we were right behind them. And it was, um, I think it was uh, November, December, two thousand two or it possibly was the beginning of two thousand three. By the time there was a lot of hurry up, wait, hurry up, wait, so kind of went through all of that, but it was probably early 2003 when we actually arrived uh, boots on the ground in Iraq. Yeah, I remember talking to some uh, Green Berets about them waiting for 4ID to come back them up and they never came. And so they, they were in from the north by themselves, so pretty, uh, pretty scary time for those guys, I assume. Oh, I'm sure of it. Okay, so first deployment. First deployment was like you said. You blinked, and it was it was done. It was long. We were there about thirteen months, but it was so intense and a lot of flying. And it was it was great. I don't mean intense in a bad way. It was it, it pushed you know me personally, but I would say all of the pilots and the aviators, officers and warrant officers and soldiers that I was with to the limits. Little sleep, terrible conditions, no showers, no food, like bad food when you got it. I think we moved about 15 times in 13 months. So we wow. would we would move up to a certain point. They we would fly missions, support whatever ground forces were there, and then they'd have us hop to another location. We just kept moving. So we didn't really settle down at one of the big... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. FOBs. We we really did a lot of moving as a smaller group to support who needed it most. And that was from the, I was in 110 CAV. So it was a CAV unit's mission to be able to do that. So I wasn't with Blackhawks or Apaches or Chinooks. I was with a pure CAV squadron and that um, it was okay. 58 Delta. So the light attack reconnaissance. And I would say we were the we definitely were the tip of the spear and got to move move a ton, but with that came a lot of obviously challenges. So that that was a Kiowa Warrior then. Yep, it's a OH fifty eight Delta. Yep, and it's a light attack air cav, so it's, it's that recce type platform and and that mission. We did anything from 
um, supporting guys going in to take take go for you know high value targets and to help before or after or during with just eyes on the objective to convoy security and and you name it we were we're besides actually hauling <laughs> we couldn't couldn't transport anything with us but uh, that really wasn't our mission set at all but we did everything um, everything else that was that was out there and a lot of QRF so if if someone was on call at all times we had rotations where you were there's three different shifts and we, we flew in teams of two so we were you were either early morning midday into night or the night shift and then you spent so many days on that rotation and then you'd cycle out and then move on to the next one so yeah. we were always available for whatever ground forces were and were how much, nearby how much planning would go into the actual missions from the aviation side would you be integrated into the into the ground commander's planning or would you do your own planning in isolation or how would that work oh definitely um planning together so I would say that not all missions are planned and, and that's due to either reacting to things like contact or being a QRF force. But when there were missions where we knew a ground force was going into, you know, this town to get this bad guy or or to, to do some, you know, knocking on doors, we would be from the very beginning planning and our AMCs, so our air mission commanders would be there planning every part of it and how we could be integrated in, where they needed us most, where they thought they need us, needed us, and we could explain certain capabilities like, you know, the aircraft were downwind, we wouldn't be detected right here at this location. We could help you with eyes on, um, you know, whether it be a, a group of houses or whatever it was that the ground guys were going into. But that integrated planning is the only way for for pure success we also talk about all the contingencies yeah. okay you know this happens here this happens here how we're a part of their contingencies and their support to ours you know with people and ammo and you know if anyone ever got got shot down and things like that so yeah yeah i'm a, I'm a huge believer in wargaming and second third order effects and being able to mitigate those through planning and then and then having a having a plan for when the plan goes wrong. I think that was probably one of one of my strengths as a as a you know ground force commander. I remember a few times in Afghanistan working pretty closely with the um the insertion guys, the American Black Hawks, um and and their Cobra, um uh, sorry, their Apache elements as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and being able to use them as part of our not just our QRF, but you know, talking about their loiter patterns and being able to have them on call because the AME couldn't reach us, things like that, as well as using the the Apaches as a um, support by fire platform if required. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that more and more the, the experiences from Afghanistan have shown us that you have to have that that joint planning. You can't plan mm-hmm. two parts of a mission in isolation. You've got to have that the pilots in there with the ground force, you know, commander. It just builds the relationship too. It's not just yeah. a relationship that you yeah. know you're on call with. You've planned together. You've talked through. You've, you've looked each other in the eye, looking at a map or looking at whatever it may be. This is what this is the call that I'll make when this happens. And I, I think that does make a huge difference to the success of, of missions and and the success of contingencies 
because they've already been planned, they've already been talked through. Yeah. And and when it's life and death, and you're talking about you know an aircraft going down or or even a, even a vehicle hitting an IED or getting ambushed, this is this you've talked through that, so it's it's second nature. No one's freaking out. No one's you know doesn't know what to do or questioning themselves. They know exactly what they're going to do next because they've planned for it and they've talked about it. So. Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with you. What's uh, what are the weapons on the OH fifty eight D platform? What what weapon systems does it have? So we actually can uh, can be configured several different ways with with Hellfires um, with two point seven five inch rockets, and then with a fifty cal. The air to air side we didn't really use. So any one of the four of them, it could be rock rocket on. Um, Rocket on the left, rocket on the right, or you could do decal on one side, rocket on the other, and it and the team of two um, might be different how they configure their the aircraft. But it's all based on obviously the the enemy and and what the ground force really needs. If you think you're going to to fire you know hellfires into bunkers in you know five k away or something, that's if if that's a possibility, then you'd be armed differently. So. Yeah. Taught, it taught it weather conditions and mm. you know, sand and stuff. We learned a lot with 50 cal and 50 cal cans and ammo and sand and getting jams and things like that. You don't want to be actually in a situation where you need to use a weapon system and have an issue because of the you know the environment. So yeah. so I, I I flew in Iraq. It wasn't Afghanistan. So. It's very dependent, and I'm I'm glad I flew with the people I did fly with because I went into my unit in combat without uh, any experience, and I received tons of yeah. on-the-job training type. <sighs> this is we're gonna practice this right now. We're gonna practice anything from shooting my nine mil out the side of the open door because my you know the guy that has. To. 30 years experience sitting next to me is like better make sure that nine mil doesn't jam and I'm, I'm in an aircraft why am I ever gonna have to use a nine mil he's like if we go down and you have to use that nine mil we better make sure that thing works and you know how to shoot it and yeah. you know we've been to ranges I've been qualified and everything but it's different to be able to right there do it in, in combat environment. Mm. Mm. yep and do it and do it to make sure you know you know how everything works and mm. everything's cleaned and properly properly done but and I'm I'm very happy with the the training I received and the sighting system on the on the uh, Kiowa is is it the China graph pencil on the window or has that changed has that been updated <laughs> well so and so believe it or not so first the the 58d and the d is there because it has a flare um, a flare on top or it had a flare on the top so whether it be a laser designator or that the that's the system we use to be able to to see um, both day and, and night, and you used it to to shoot um, to shoot the hellfires for sure. But as far as I so, it's the super Kiowa that was that was the the one without the sighting system, is that right? It was Alpha Charlie, so it was the one before that, and yeah. it had a back seat where you had a forward observer, you know, with a yeah. with a M sixteen probably or whatever sitting in the back, and that was more. Vietnam after Vietnam, but before I was I was ever in the in mm. the army. So the the pencil on the windscreen. I'm telling you, I learned especially shooting 
um, shooting 50 cal with the with the Vietnam vet next to me. He had it. He put it on there and said, "You have to be able to like walk those tar- walk those rounds onto the target." And you know where you sit in the aircraft, how you sit, like sitting up where you're viewing is your eyeballs through that aircraft. You know how what the angle should be, and you just. Yeah, I, I learned that old school way, believe it or not, so, and and more practice, like everything else, like sports, like everything. It's the more practice you get, the better you get at doing it. So, yeah. so tell me about the first time you unleashed the weapon systems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say it's something that is so. It, it, I just remember it like it was yesterday because we had so many opportunities over that year that I was in Iraq. I do remember the first time. The first time we were shot at, um, but we we shot all the time. Yeah. We there there was I would say on a regular basis. So I don't I don't really remember the first time. For me, I also I sat more as the platoon leader, you know, on the radio and and operating the site. Um, but I I do remember the first time we shot a Hellfire. That was a very if you think about how much one of those costs too, that was a very yeah. significant experience. Um, mm. And we also did it as a team of two. So where we lazed and they shot the Hellfire and oh, yeah. then, you know, the other way around. So it's just, it's it's great to say a chance to do that. But I remember the first time we were shot at because I remember thinking at night, you know, you see, you see, you know, thinking what it would be like and will we know it unless we hear it or feel it actually hitting the aircraft or what will it, what will it seem like? Cause you see random celebratory fire at a wedding or something and you just see random, Oh, there's some rounds going into the sky, not thinking, Oh, someone's shooting it at the two aircraft going by. Mm. Um, but I do remember the, the person sitting next to me saying, you know, Lieutenant, do you know what that, do you know what that is? Do you know what's happening right now? And kind of just being more like just shocked. Oh my gosh, what do you do? Like, what do we do? Not that we're not trained to do it, but come on back around, like turn the team of two back around and let's go after whoever that was. Like that's, you know, we're, we're, we're taking fire and that's, and that's not cool. It's eye open. That's no way. I'm like, who did it? Why'd they do it? And, <laughs> and here not, I come. Not so much why, but yeah. here we go. So it was interesting. And, and those are the things that I definitely, I'll never forget, regardless of how many years it's been since I've been over there. Those are the experiences that I think will stay with you forever. Yeah. And you did some pretty cool missions with the SF guys as well. And I guess going into urban areas at night on NVGs probably from my own experience, is probably something that you would have been doing pretty constantly with those guys, landing them on rooftops and this, that, and the other. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Casey and I talk about this, or we've, we have talked about it. Our experiences are so different because being in the air, even in an urban area where there's a lot going on and there's a lot of action and everything else, being in the air, you're still removed from the face-to-face. Because you're flying an aircraft. Potentially. Right. You're You're... We watched and supported because you're you're watching and and supporting just whatever they can't see or just angles and areas they can't see on the ground. You're helping them. So tons of communication challenges, but explaining to guys entering one building that mm-hmm. there are you know a dozen bad guys or a dozen people jumping out windows from the same building as they enter, and you can see them all going out and running and then chasing all of that business. It's it's very, very high intensity, 
high action and, and never a dull moment. And at the time, you don't realize, God, I'm exhausted. But it's uh-huh. after the mission's over and you land and you're going to go to midnight chow or whatever. I'm exhausted. You know, you're just the adrenaline and everything. It wears off and then you just, you're smoked. But that's that's what we did, especially a lot of night missions supporting certain customers. We definitely saw lots of, lots of stuff those guys were doing. Yeah. And you know, you know, you had a cool career and I know that you know that because we have a mutual friend who's a banker, an English guy. And one day you were at a, a function with me and I was talking to you about flying down a, an urban street, firing off uh, rockets. And he was in complete awe. You know who I'm talking about. He was in complete awe of you. And then every time he saw you after that, all he wanted to do was talk to you about flying, flying in, uh, in Iraq, which is pretty funny. But what about the, the whole escape and evasion side of it must weigh on your mind a little bit? And I know that you do some sort of, you know, escape and recovery exercises and, and the like. How, how, how did you think you were postured and set up for that? Would you have been, do you think, you know, is it one of those things that's always weighing on your mind or do you think that it was something you could have dealt with if it had happened? Well, well, so basic, basic flight in flight school, we all went through SEER and, and a lot of, that's just the basic training and, and everyone received the same thing. And what's, what's SEER stand for, Jess? Because people listening to this aren't in the military yet, mostly. It's, I shouldn't even have used a lot of acronyms. So it's a lot of what you would do to survive yeah. in, an, in, an, in a scenario where and it doesn't have to be specific to aviation. So other uh-huh. people, different branches go through it, but you survive whatever it may be, a crash or a, an accident. And then you, you know, you're trying to evade and get away from whoever's chasing you down. You would, if you are captured, then you would resist whatever kinds of torture they would put you through and then escape. The last E being the most important is just to, to get away from your know, yeah. enemy hands. And that, that seer, there's different levels of, of seer training and, and all kinds of different people, depending on their jobs, get it. In, in combat, we would discuss every single time before we actually got into the aircraft and took off, we talked about what we would do and it was the team of four so it's two aircraft but it's two pilots in one and two pilots in the other the four of us would talk about it and there was one uh warrant officer that i a younger guy that i flew with and i remember always he he made such a point of it you know what would the second aircraft do if the first aircraft went down and we're not an aircraft that has seats in the back so would we be able to with weight of the of the guys you know have them attach themselves kind of sit on a weapons on a a pylon or a pod on the outside and would we be able to land take them with us and then get out of whatever harm's way we were in to save the two other people so they wouldn't have to you know evade and and in the desert or in in an urban situation possibly get captured and things like that but we talked about it every single time we went out on every single mission and think it's important. I think one of the things you have to talk about, but we didn't, it's not something that you just glossed over. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what are you doing now, Jess? What job are you up up to now? And do you miss flying? I do. I miss it so much. And I think Mm. that my current position as a, I'm a senior program manager for a big manpower contract that supports the UAE's military and their aviation force. So 
I'm responsible for a lot of guys that come from all over, from the U.S., the U.K., Australia, that, that flew and are instructors, instructor pilots, technician instructors, uh, crewmen instructors, and they come over here and into to Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai, and they train the UAE force. So all the time I think, why can't I? And I was never an instructor pilot, so that's my biggest downfall. Um, as an officer, you really don't go the, that yeah. path in the, in the U.S. military, so we hire a lot of very serious and experienced um, warrant officers that are instructor pilots, but they do that here. So I'm around aviation all different types of aircraft and, and trainers and every day it's, it's, and I love my job because I have a lot of knowledge of, of what is needed, but I don't actually get to do the fun stuff anymore. That's, that's yeah. where it ended for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you regret that? Do you regret leaving maybe a little bit earlier and, or had you had your fun I, and then you wanted to have the kids and that was it? Well, right. I definitely had, had my fun. I, I would not have been against doing it again, staying for longer. But I think as soon as we had kids and, and one is one thing, but then instantly two and three, I, I just, my mind and the way my priorities were, it wasn't about me and getting to do, you know, fun flying mm. and combat missions and all that anymore because with my husband being in his line of work, one of the two of us had to not go and, and we couldn't both leave three kids so little um, alone. Yeah. And, and not, just, not just for a deployment for three months or for 12 months, but God forbid anything ever happened to us, mm. leave them without, mm. without parents. And I just could never wrap my, yeah. my head around it. And I, I kind of knew, okay, if we're going to do it, if we're going to start to have kids and go down the family route, then then one of us has to kind of turn in, <laughs> turn it in and, and go a different route. And I did some staff work on, on core staff at, at Fort Bragg, which was fun. And it, it, it's a different side of it. it. It's not all, everything in the army isn't all banging down doors no, and that's right. shooting at bad guys. So there's a, every, every different aspect of support and staff is, is important. And I got to see a, a part of it, although it wasn't as sexy and exciting, it was still, you know, doing, doing my thing. And I don't, I don't regret that side of it. But as I look at my kids, I know that this is what I was meant to mm. meant to do instead, and I'm glad I'm still around a group of people that are military um, types because then it keeps me um, still, you know, supporting the same type of mission. Yeah, and and given your, I guess, college swimming background, and then the ten year career you had, you know, I want to ask you about CrossFit. And do you think do you think CrossFit is one of those things that perhaps if people were doing that before they sign up? they'll find the training, the physical training easier for the, for the military, do you think? I do. I, I do think that, and not even CrossFit specifically, but all of that type of, I never did any of that before mm. and only well, had it around, it was it? later on. Right. I mean, and, and any type of, it's not just even hit training. It's on the CrossFit side. It's, it's not only Olympic lifting type, but, rope climbs and and really pushing your body to to do some things you know way above how much weigh or what you think you can do and your muscle endurance mm. and mm. i think it would help tremendously and i'm sure it is in the young kids that are joining now all of what they do on 
CrossFit and all their, you know, the fun stuff they did doesn't just impact like how well they do in sports and how strong they are, but it would absolutely help with, with the army, army or the military training, I keep saying army, but whatever it is that they're joining, it, it, I'm sure it will, it will help them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I think too. And that's what we're trying to push through this program is that, you know, looking at all of those movements, uh, all of those CrossFit movements, Olympic lifting movements, high intensity interval training, you know, coupled with some skills training, so understanding your body better stands you in better stead. Um, hey, thanks, Jess. I want to thank you very much for allowing KC to do the podcast with me a couple of weeks ago and for now for you doing it as well. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much for asking me to, to do this with you. No, it's awesome. Is there anything you want to tell everyone about before we go? Is there anything you want to talk about or are you pretty happy with uh, with all the knowledge bombs that you've dropped on me today? <laughs> I think I think I've probably said enough, but um, I just I really appreciate this and you you know that Casey and I both we have so much respect for what you're doing and and just the initiatives, you have the guts to kind of get out there and and teach and mentor and, and do some things that n- not a lot of people are doing. So it's it's good to share what experiences we've had with, with whoever will listen. So I appreciate it. 